Thank you, Rachel and Jan and Jana. Uh, I've heard that verse before, Romans 15, 13. <laughs> when Jana told me that was her mother's life verse, I said, well, that's so fitting and so appropriate. We're all in need of a little hope these uh, times. And uh, if you're wondering why Morgan's over here with Isaiah, it must be because they couldn't get a doctor's appointment. She's, uh, someone said today, mothers get no days off. And uh, Isaiah woke up with a little infection in his eye today. So uh, that's how it goes. Happy Mother's Day to, to Morgan, my beautiful wife. <laughs> Thank you for mothering our children so well. Uh, we're going to continue today in the, the book of Isaiah talking about our safe house our refuge, our place where we can go to dwell secure, safe and sound from all of the uh, trials that assail us in this life. Last week we saw how Isaiah foretold the end of all things, how he showed us that where this is all going is good, that there's a point to everything, that God's gonna one day break back into our world and make all things new once again. He's gonna destroy death itself. He's gonna wipe away every tear. And we're going to have a massive party. We're going to have a, a glorious feast with Christ himself as our gracious host. All nations are going to look to the one true God and worship him and the splendor of his holiness and glory and majesty. It's going to be an incredible day. It's an awesome vision. It's an incredible promise that we have in Isaiah chapter 24 to 27. But if you're like me and you tend towards uh, cynicism, maybe, Maybe you tend towards uh, questioning everything or contrarianism. My mom, uh, it's appropriate for Mother's Day, uh, she used to always say to me, you would argue with what? A fence post. Yes, you would argue with a fence post is what she would always tell me. I don't know why she said that. I can't imagine that I ever would give her that impression. But those are the, the kind of, of people that we're dealing with in the Bible. These contrarian people who are doubting God's promises, who are questioning, how do we know this vision is true? And maybe you find yourself, you know, I'm talking about God making all things new, and maybe you say, really? Is that really going to happen? How do we know? Is that just a bunch of religi religious mumbo jumbo, or is that a serious reality that one day we will actually experience? Isaiah answers those kinds of questions in the following chapters, in chapter 28 to 37. He's gonna show us what he's actually seen with his prophetic eyes, that God does indeed control all of history, and that he's moving all of this towards that beautiful day when the Messiah will return to finish the work of redemption that he began 2,000 years ago. So what's our part in this? So what does it mean for us? Do we have a role to play in the salvation of God coming to the world? Not really. We don't bring salvation to the world. God does. It's not up to us to save the world. Thank goodness that's up to God and not you and me. It's something alone that God can do alone. So if our part then is not to be the hero of the story, then what is our role? It's to be the people who fully trust in the one true hero of the story. The ones who know who the protagonist is. The ones who get on board with the hero. The ones who get behind his agenda in full faith and full support. And that means living by faith and not by sight. The word for that is trusting. 
It means that our part in this whole process is merely to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. I've told you before that I have trust issues. I don't like riding in the car with other people. On my 22nd birthday, uh, this cute girl that I was dating uh, named Morgan at Belmont uh, said, hey, I'm going to um, take you somewhere and I need you to put on a blindfold. I said, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> not doing it. But I, and she said, come on, be a good sport. My, my buddy Jonathan has the same birthday as I do on September 8th. And so uh, one of his friends blindfolded him and was taking him somewhere. And then Morgan said, just put it on. I said, okay. And she led me down the steps of her apartment and we got in her car and she, you know, had to guide me into the front seat. And about, you know, five minutes into the ride, I'm car sick, I'm sweating, I don't know where we're going and I'm, I'm miserable and frustrated. She, she stops the car, leads me up some steps and surprise, we're back in her apartment where 30 or 40 of our friends had crammed in there for a big uh, surprise party for me and my friend Jonathan. It was, it was great. It was a good promise because I knew that I'll, uh, I'll never forget how fun that was. Everybody screaming surprise when we took our blindfolds off. It was a, a good surprise. She knew where we were going and I trusted that she was not gonna take me somewhere bad, that she was not gonna in engage in something that would be to my detriment, but that what the end result would be would be for my good and for my own happiness. So do we trust that God is leading us somewhere good for our good and ultimately for his glory? Many of us have been following the Lord for most of our lives. We have church members here who've been following Jesus for 70, 80 years. Some even 90 years have been following Christ for that long. But that doesn't come naturally to us. And that doesn't mean that we have it all figured out. And that doesn't mean that it's easy to trust and obey. We want to rip the blindfold off. We want to take the wheel. We want to be in charge of our own lives. We're tempted to cry out, stop the car. I want out. I'm, I'm over it. We're scared to ride in the passenger seat, especially when we can't see where we're going or we don't know where we are or we don't know what's coming. But the only way to experience the refuge of God in the safe house that he has prepared for us now and forever is to trust in him. The only way to experience that peace and security that God offers freely to us is to put all of our trust in him alone. The safe house that we've been talking about this whole month is only entered into by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We then dwell secure in God's provision, in God's protection, in God's providence, in how he provides for us, not through our moral performance, not through anything that we do or our personal achievement, but through God's grace alone. So in these chapters for the month of May, we, we see the prophet putting a question before us, Will we trust in God's promises or will we trust in the world? Will we trust in our own flesh? Will we trust in our abilities? Can Jesus really deliver on all these messianic prophecies that are ours in Isaiah and elsewhere in the Bible? 
or is it up to us to save ourselves and save the world? Let's see what Isaiah has to show us before we decide. I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Isaiah chapter 28 today as we dive into our text. It's, it's broken up into three kind of segments here, and we're going to take them one at a time, but they're all pointing us to the same application, to build our lives based on the one true foundation that will last, the cornerstone, the, the only sure foundation that we have. All three of these texts are going to point us to that application point as we see how God tells us we can actually live a life of meaning, of purpose, and of fulfillment, one that leads to life, abundant life, in this life and in the next life. So first, we're going to see how trusting in ourselves inevitably leads to disaster. In the first 13 verses of this chapter, we see that over and over again that trusting in our own ability never ends well. Look at verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim was another word for Samaria or the kingdom of Israel, which has seceded from the Davidic kingdom of Judah in the south. You only have two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, who remain faithful to the Davidic covenant in Jerusalem. Then the other ten tribes said, we're done with this. We're out of here. We're, we're going up north. We'll see you later. Peace out. And they went and started the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were pretty much living a, a pagan life. They were sort of Jewish, kind of intermarried with the Samaritan people that lived there. But this is a judgment on the, the people of Israel. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Skip to verse 3. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. That proud crown will go away. We've seen this pattern play out in history a thousand times before, right? This kingdom of Israel had some commercial success. They actually did pretty well trading with other foreign nations, and they built a, a pretty impressive kingdom. They built some, some fine cities, and they engaged in commerce, and their economy was going really well. That doesn't bother me at all, by the way, Jeremy. I'm used to, I have uh, three, I've been a youth pastor, I promise that's not anything uh, to me. Uh, we'll see you, Abigail. <laughs> We've seen that pattern play out, okay? The nation rises to a level of self sufficiency, they accumulate a little wealth and prosperity, and they start to indulge in escapism, in leisure. They, they become overindulgent, as we see here. And what do they need God for anyway? They're doing pretty good for themselves. They're doing pretty well. So why would they want to follow God's ways? Or why would they want to listen to the commands of God? They like doing things their way, and they're pretty proud of how things are going in their kingdom. But remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, way back in, in Genesis, kind of from Genesis 13 on through 19, where it's, it, actually 22, where it's completely wiped out. The Bible tells us that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, right, were great sinners. The Lord couldn't even find 10 righteous people. Remember, Abraham says, Lord, what if you find 10 righteous people? And God says, I won't destroy those cities if I find 10 righteous people. Did he find 10? No, he couldn't. 
because they were so wicked. And what happened? He rained sulfur and fire down upon the cities uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and destroyed those wicked places. Today, when we encounter, you know, a den of iniquity, we, we say, oh, it's a modern day Sodom and Gomorrah down there. We're quick to judge their sin. And what was their sin exactly? We're quick to point out, you know, their, their sexual sin, but there's more to it. That was only one small part of a larger problem. Look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 to 50. God spells it out for Judah. He says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. What? The first thing listed is pride. Pride. Excess of food. We don't have that here, do we? When my friends from Australia came to visit here, they could not believe the portion sizes of our restaurants. They just were blown away at how much food was on their plate. A large cup at McDonald's in Australia is like our small cup. You get a, a large cup here and it's, you know, a gallon and they just couldn't believe it because who needs a gallon of soda? Don't answer that. My wife probably says I do. Uh, <laughs> the other sins, excess food, prosperous ease. They did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty. That means proud and did an abomination before me. That's the sexual sin. But what about the pride? What about the excess leisure? What about the excess of food? Well, that doesn't sound like us at all, does it? <laughs> that couldn't possibly apply to America, could it? You know, the last thing that God listed is the sexual sin, but the, the pride, the excess of food are violating God's standards. Holiness is a package deal. Holiness and surrendering to the Lord has to be complete and full. We'll see you, Abigail. You're welcome to come back soon, okay, girl? <laughs> we'll see you. <laughs> Pride is the enemy here. We don't get to pick our pet sins. We don't get to pick the things that we condemn others for because we're all sinners. We're all in the same boat. We don't get to judge people because they struggle with something that we may not struggle with. And vice versa, we don't get to pick and choose what sins we get to commit and hang on to. It's either holiness or nothing with the Lord. And our holiness doesn't come from our own merit. It comes from Jesus Christ. We don't get to pick and choose. And pride is the enemy. Pride's the root of all the other sins. Pride is trusting in one's own ability to make a right life for one's self, to make one right before God and others on our own ability. But as Isaiah prophesies here in verse 3, the proud crown of these people is going to be trodden underfoot. It never ends well. Keep going, verse 4. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, is going to be like a first ripe fig for the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it, gulps it down as soon as it's in his hand. We had a fig tree uh, next to our first house in Birmingham. I didn't even know what it was. I just saw these, you know, green things hanging. And I was like, what's that? And I opened it. I was like, this looks weird. I'm going to eat it. <laughs> That's what we do, right? And I ate it. And it was delicious. It was so good. You just gulp it in one gulp. That's how fast, God says, your kingdom is going to be overthrown. Superficial beauty is fleeting. Worldly beauty does not last all the proud buildings of Samaria, the, the kingdom of Israel in the north is going to be reduced to nothing. 
We're so confident in our achievements. We're so confident in our abilities, the things that we've built with our own hands, but they will not last. The pride that we feel in our achievements, the pride that we feel even for doing good, for being moral. I gave more to the church last year than I ever have. I'm a good person. <laughs> we have pride in things like that too. Richard Lovelace in his classic work, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, says that people who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure people. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, in a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. And that, that criticism plays out in a number of ways. That criticism shows up in sinful ways, such as classism and racism even. Loveless continues that these people come naturally to hate other cultural styles and other races in order to bolster their own security and discharge their suppressed anger. These are angry, miserable self-righteous people. And that's where trusting in ourselves inevitably takes us. A life of misery, striving to make ourselves feel okay about ourselves by putting others down, by judging others. But the gospel offers us a better way. There's a way to get over ourselves and to replace the crown of pride that does not last and does not fulfill with a true, lasting crown that doesn't fade away or spoil or perish, but is kept secure for us in the safe house. It's a crown that we can't earn. It's a crown that we can't deserve, but it's freely given to us by the grace of God. Look at verses 5 and 6. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. We can stand firm with the crown that is the Lord and his strength. I love how Ray Ortland puts it in his commentary, when God is our treasure, when God is our treasure, more delightful than all the world, when we like the fact that the last will be first and that the weak are made strong and that fools are wise, then when we gladly identify with a rejected Savior, that's when we're making contact with reality. But people who are trapped in their own pride are not teachable. You know, I love coaching. I've coached basketball probably more than 15 years. And you give me a mediocre athlete any day who's teachable, who's trainable, who will do the things that I'm asking him to do as a coach, Give me that kid any day over a super talented, arrogant kid who just wants to take the ball to the hole himself every time and keeps calling his own number. You know, Belmont basketball has made an entire brand off of this idea that you can take a bunch of, you know, short, mediocre athletes and accomplish so much with them when you get them all to buy into the idea that you can accomplish so much more together I heard Rick Bird once say, legendary coach Rick Bird at Belmont, he once said, it's amazing, and he, other people have said this, he was quoting someone else, but he believes this. It's amazing what you can accomplish 
when no one cares about who gets the credit. You heard that before? It's amazing what you can accomplish. And that's how he coached. That's, how, that's the philosophy that he lived by. But people trapped in pride can't be coached. They can't buy into something bigger than themselves because it's all about themselves. Look at verses 9 and 10. To whom then will he teach knowledge, the prophet, the Lord? Who's going to teach knowledge? Who, to whom is he going to teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message of the gospel? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast? For it's, it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. They're not teachable. The people are saying, what can we possibly learn from the prophet? What can we learn from God's word? This is preschool stuff. We don't need to hear this. I'm, I have a doctorate degree. I don't need this stuff. I'm a, I have a master's. I make a lot of money. I don't need this. God says, fine, if you won't listen to my word, my commandments, my prophets, then I'm going to send people who are pagan outsiders to teach you, and you're not going to like what you hear. They're going to teach you, as I tell my kids, the hard way. That's going to come through Assyria, who comes to judge the people of God. He's tried to show us how to rest in him, where the good way is how to flourish and how to really thrive, but we wouldn't listen. So sometimes God uses outsiders, foreign, pagan people, to teach our hearts. For example, there's a lot of deeply secular people who are warning our society now about the effects of technology on our humanity. And the church isn't really doing a lot about it. There's a great book by Andy Crouch called The TechWise Family, but he quotes a lot of secular authors who are doing more in this area than Christians are. Or what about uh, when the political party that we didn't vote for, whichever side that may be, says something about caring for the poor or caring for family and the importance of families, and it doesn't line up with our political beliefs, but it just so happens to line up with what the Bible teaches. Ouch, how do we handle that? We would do well to listen to what the Bible teaches, even when we don't want to in our pride. So if prideful self-sufficiency has become uh, one of the hallmarks of our culture, and it has, and if that pride leads to destruction, what hope do we have? Where should we place our trust then if not in ourselves? What hope do we have for the future? What will happen to us if we step out in faith and build our lives on something other than ourselves, will it end up being shifting sand or will it be a solid rock, a firm foundation? God has established a safe house for us and it's firmly built on the cornerstone that he himself has laid. He has a plan to secure our future. Look at verse 16. The second point here is that we trust in God's plan for our future. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion, the holy city of God, a stone, 
a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Whoever builds their life on this cornerstone will not be scurrying around trying to make sense of their lives. They won't be scrambling around, spinning their wheels in the rat race of this life, but will actually be resting securely. Isaiah is still talking about the city of God. Remember last week we talked about the choice we faced. Are we, we going to dwell in the city of God or in the city built by human hands? You know, the, we have this choice and the foundation of life in the city of God is predicated upon the sure foundation of a perfect cornerstone that determines how the rest of the city is laid out. You know, we don't do this. Calvin's a builder. We don't do this now. We have sophisticated tools in building a Trevor, all these builders that we have here. But in ancient times, they would find the most perfect stone and they would level it. They would spend hours and hours making sure this stone was completely level and the angles were perfectly right on it. And they would lay it in the corner of the foundation. And then they would build off of that cornerstone. And every line, every wall was only as good as that cornerstone was. It determined the structural integrity of the rest of the building. The cornerstone was the key piece on which the entire structure depended. In the city of God, the cornerstone of the whole thing is established by the key piece, the linchpin of God's perfect plan to build a glorious city out of the mess that we've made here. And that central piece, the perfect cornerstone, is the Messiah, the anointed one, who would come to bring about God's plan and build God's family in the most amazing and perfect way. The Apostle Paul quotes this verse, Isaiah 28, 16, in Romans 9. We don't have time to read it. 1 Peter chapter 2, one of my favorite passages. Uh, Peter says, as you come to Christ, the Messiah, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are building our church on Christ the solid rock. The key to starting correctly is to build with the foundation. You know, I've, I've said it before, when you start buttoning a shirt and you start at the bottom and you get the buttons wrong and then you realize at the top that everything's off, the whole thing's crooked. It doesn't make sense. You have to start with the right button as you work your way up. And if you start with the right one, everything will fall into place and make sense. The key is to start with the right foundation. And the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. When we build our lives on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, when we have a living sense of him, when we attach ourselves to him as living stones, then we have great power for living. There's great power in being built into God's family. Isaiah tells us whoever believes will not be in haste. Our lives will have meaning, they'll have purpose, and a settled sense of security because of the firm foundation. 
will never fail, no matter how great the storm is. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against the foe or traitor she ever shall prevail. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed and the great church victorious shall be what? The church, I know Dr. Sherman knows, the church at rest. That's the future to where we're headed. If we start with the foundation of Jesus, which brings us to the last point here. Trust in God's ways for the present. Isaiah uses some strange farming analogy for the present. We're about to go off the air, so I just want to close with that word. Do you trust in God for your future? Do you trust in God for your present? That his ways are best. Later in Isaiah 55, we'll see that God's ways are higher than our ways. They're infinitely better than our ways. Do we believe that he knows what he's doing? Do we believe that he actually has good in mind for us? Do we trust that his ways are best? Look at verses 23 through 26 real quickly. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear. And hear my, oh, sorry. Does he who plows, yeah, hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? No. Does he continually open and harrow his ground? No. When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and inmer as the border? He's talking about plowing. For the farmer is rightly instructed as God teaches him. God may be turning up the soil of your life right now when you don't know if you're going to fly an airplane again, when you don't know what your next job is going to be. Sarah looking for a job back there. When you don't know where your next paycheck is going to come from or where your family is. Maybe you're estranged from a loved one. God may be plowing up the soil. we got farmers here. Kyle's a farmer over there. Well, God may be plowing the field. But why do you plow, Kyle? You plow so you can plant. You till the soil so that you can bring life. And God doesn't plow forever, just like a farmer doesn't plow forever. If your life is being turned upside down right now, know that God, his intention is not to do it forever. It's a season, and it will lead to planting. It will lead to flourishing. If only you will trust him in that. God is a loving and gracious God, and he knows what he's doing. Look at verse 28 and 29. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he, he doesn't thresh it forever. When he drives his cart, wheel over it with his horses. He does not crush it. God's not trying to crush you. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He's wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows what he's doing? Some of you feel like you're being crushed today. Some of you feel like you're running around in haste trying to save yourselves and maybe save the world. That's not your job. The invitation today is to quit to surrender anew to the plow, maybe that's coming to your life, to the Lord who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Trust him with your future through Jesus. He's going to make all things new. I got a beautiful text message from Clyde Herring today, whose wife just died a couple weeks ago. 
He said, I've never been more confident in the, the reality of heaven than I am right now. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Do you believe that through Jesus? Trust him with that future. He's going to make all things new. Trust him with your present. He's in charge, he's good, and he knows what he's doing. Rest in the knowledge that if your life is being built on the cornerstone, the solid rock of Jesus Christ, that he is indeed a firm foundation. He will not change like shifting sand, and you will be rooted firmly and established as a living stone built on the one true cornerstone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you show us that you have established for us a perfect cornerstone, and yet so many people have rejected it, have rejected Christ as the living cornerstone. But you offer us a chance to build our lives on him, the solid rock that does not shift, that does not move. God, I pray that you would help us to quit building on the shifting sand of our changing circumstances of a culture that's constantly evolving and changing. Help us to be rooted firmly as you build us into the beautiful house that you are building. God, as we hear the thunder roll, we are aware that you are sovereign over all, and that we are just dust that you have breathed life into. And yet through Jesus Christ, you offer us a chance to be made new as you make all things new. God, forgive us for trusting in ourself. May we surrender anew to your grace today and receive it afresh. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. May we trust and obey. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of response now. The solid rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. Maybe today you realize you've been building your life on shifting sand of culture. And you say, I'm done. I want to build my life on Christ, the solid rock. Maybe you've never done that before, and you need to surrender for the first time to Christ. If you need to do that today, don't delay any longer. There's no better time to give your life to Christ than right now. Maybe you, you realize you're trying to do it on your own, and you need a team. You need a family. You need spiritual mothers, spiritual fathers, spiritual brothers and sisters to run this race with you. If you want to join Woodmont Baptist Church as a member and be a part of what God's doing here, we invite you to come and talk about that. Maybe you've never been baptized. The Schlamps are going to get baptized here in a couple weeks, and Doyle is going to be baptized with them on May 30th. If you say, I need to follow Christ's example of believer's baptism, then I invite you to come and talk about that now. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, deal honestly with the Lord as we stand and sing our hymn of response on Christ the solid rock. Let's stand.